0: Imagine you've been accused of a crime. You enter the courtroom to take your seat where every eye in the room is on you, especially the jury. After all, the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution guarantees our citizens the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, implying a jury of your peers. There's one hitch to this scenario, however. You're in the military, and that Sixth Amendment doesn't apply the same as it does to civilians. In fact, your jury can only consist of military members who outrank you, And the military attorney who has been assigned to your case is outranked by the prosecuting attorney who is throwing the book at you. And then comes the barrage of evidence from others who outrank you or certainly hold more influence than you. Oh, by the way, you are innocent of the charges, but my guess is that you're not feeling real confident about your chances right now. On this episode of Lessons from the Front, I talk to Colby Vokey, a former Marine attorney who defended some very sensitive cases while on active duty. Colby discusses some of these cases and explains some of the major differences between the legal worlds of the military and the civilian community. You'll find out why he was not always the most popular guy in the room, and how his role as a defense attorney may have negatively impacted his career. As a civilian attorney, he continues to work with military attorneys on some very high profile military cases because as he reminded me, the right to due process is fundamentally American. From Carry the Load, these are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. When we initially met, uh, I was a PFC or a lance corporal. You were a captain. We were. Uh, you were an artillery officer working in the um, uh, in the inspector instructor group. All right. In uh, what is actually even no longer the out in the Naval Air Station uh, uh, NAS Dallas, I guess is what it was called back then. And then you made the switch to law. So, what? what was it that prompted you to make the switch to law that was not going to fulfill you on the artillery side?
1: Well, I, and I, and I loved artillery. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I think what put that bug in my head was, um, when I, before I was on I-9 duty in Dallas, I was stationed out in Okinawa and got chosen to, to sit on a couple of courts, Marshall. So, um, sitting as a, a jury member, you know, a member, and I remember sitting in this one case involved bad checks for a young Lance Corporal. And the uh, prosecutor was a major who walked in, and he was polished, seemed to know what he was doing. Defense counsel was a first lieutenant. He obviously was new, didn't know what he was doing. And I, I'm watching this process go on, and I'm looking at that poor Lance Corporal, and I'm thinking, man, he deserves a better defense than that. And uh, I could do that. I just need to know what's in those books right there on his desk, Right. So that's kind of what prompted it. And then we go through the deliberation process. So going through that whole process, um, and I thought, you know, this is this is something that's really interesting and it's important. Uh, I mean, it's vital for keeping the good order and discipline of, of the armed forces. And at the same time, our guys deserve uh, to be defended and to be defended, you know, zealously. Whether
0: they've done something wrong...
1: Or not, right? Or not, or absolutely, just like every American's entitled to a defense, every service member is, and and my kind of my personal view is, if there's any American that deserves uh, uh, deserves it, maybe more than other, it's somebody who signed up on the dotted line. So regardless of what they've done, every single service member has volunteered to put them, themselves uh, their their life in danger, possibly. Uh, to serve their country and somebody like that deserves a good defense.
0: So at a, at a very high level kind of set the stage on, on, on what happened there, because that was obviously a very impressionable moment for you. You, you walk in, you see this Lance corporal who's being represented by uh, someone who's brand new to the case, um, who certainly not nearly as experienced and polished as the major that he's, that he's across from that in and of itself to me, kind of throws things at a disadvantage knowing the rank structure and the hierarchy of, of, uh, of the military. Was he, was he claiming that he was guilty, but you know, Hey, there's, there's more to the story or is he saying,
1: I didn't do it. Do you, do you recall that? Uh, yeah. He, and he didn't testify. I, I think it was a matter of, he did some things wrong, but not everything that they were claiming. So, uh, and we didn't hear from him at all. Um, and essentially, you're a member of the jury. I'm a member of the jury
0: as as court martial as the court martial process goes.
1: I was okay, uh, and the the prosecutor was presenting his evidence, and it, it was very smooth and fluid. Uh, there were very few objections when they were; they were kind of uncertain. Uh, he was obviously brand new as an attorney as well, so um, on the defense side. So, it, just watching this process go on and we went into that member deliberations very clearly. We went into it for deliberations and w- when you deliberate, you know, in the civilian world, if you have a, you know, for a jury, the group picks a foreman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not so in the military it's done by rank. So, I mean, we're a naturally, you know, rank driven. Sure. Oppressive, not necessarily in a bad way organization. So we go in for the members in a court martial, the senior member, uh, becomes the, 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 president, the, the jury foreman. Okay. So, um, we do it by rank in the jury room as well. So there's always a danger of, of that rank influencing people's decision. Now, judges always instruct you that no, that's not the case, but, but it happens. I mean, we're, we're talking about that. We're in the, we're in the military, right? The, the Marine Corps. And in that case, we had a major who was the uh, senior member, and I remember walking in. There was a major. I, I think we had
0: you were a lieutenant at the I was time. A, I
1: was a first lieutenant, okay. And uh, I believe there were, I, th- I think we had maybe five or six members at the time. It was back then, it wasn't set, there was a certain number. Um, it was a major, a couple of lieutenants, a warrant officer, and I think we had a, a couple of gunnies. Uh, so we, we had several enlisted on there, too. But we, none of
0: his peers. That's that's what's interesting no, about sir, that.
1: Absolutely not, and and that Sixth Amendment right to a jury of your peers is not guaranteed to members right. of the military. Um, so, as a matter of fact, you can't have a jury of your peers because one of the requirements is that every member has to be senior to the person being tried. Um, one one end of that argument is you don't want uh, you don't want a, a junior member judging you know somebody who's a commander saying. Oh, we're going to get this guy because he's a he's a lieutenant or he's a captain or whatever the case may be. Uh, so, in some ways, that makes sense. But another, on, on the other hand, you're getting people that are further away from that that peer group that can uh, further away from understanding how that person may be uh, acted or or whatever he did. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it kind of cuts both ways.
0: So that that obviously set you on the path to. I, I want to get into this, but then as you became Um, an attorney inside the Marine Corps, if I'm not mistaken, you can't always select. I want to be the prosecuting attorney, or I want to be the defense attorney, but obviously your career kind of gravitated in the direction of, of, I mean, it seems, it seems like it gravitated in the direction of defense and it certainly continued that to be that way in the civilian world. Did you have any say in the direction it went?
1: I did. I did. So, um, and you don't always because lawyers perform all kinds of jobs aside from, I mean, we think of, you know, the the prosecutor, the trial counsel or the defense counsel and and judges, there is staff judge advocates, there's lawyers that do legal assistance, there are lawyers now that do victim legal counsel, there are lawyers in a lot of different jobs, law of war, um, kind of operational law. So there's a lot of other things they can do.
0: So it's become extremely specialized.
1: Yeah, uh, y- as a general rule, your first tour as a lawyer, as a judge advocate in the Marine Corps, you're going to be doing some trial work, either on the prosecution side or the defense side or, or both. Mm-hmm. Um, your typical tour for the first first tour uh, judge advocate is half the time in one of those things, either, either uh, trial or defense or legal assistance. And kind of typical is you do half and half. Uh, Of those three, you'll do half your time in one, half your time in another. So for me, uh, coming out of uh, an artillery officer, a little bit of time in there, I felt like I had to make up for as much time, the lost time as possible for, you know, what I didn't do. Right. And I became a lawyer because I wanted to be in the courtroom. I didn't want to do any of those other jobs. So fortunately, I was able to, as much as I could choose, get my choices, Um, like when when I finished law school and went through the Naval Justice School, I wanted to go to either Lejeune or Pendleton because that's where they do the most cases. And once I got Pendleton the first time, I, you know, got stuck. I think when I was there the first time, I did both trial and defense, so prosecution and defense, um, and enjoyed doing both of them. Um, And then later on, I get the opportunity to be a regional defense counsel. And that way you're in charge of all the, the defense counsel um, in your region. In this case, I was Western again back out to Pendleton. And uh, so I have all the defense counsel basically west of the Mississippi. And at that time, uh, we had some in Iraq too. So um, that that's how I was in charge of. That's the, the job I wanted. That's the job I, was, I felt like I was born to take. So um, I did everything possible to make sure I got that job, and I did.
0: So probably the the most notorious case that you were a part of um, was the Eddie Gallagher case. Now I I know that I know you didn't stay on that all the way through. Um,
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that's the most notorious. Though you got to remember, I also defended one of the uh, detainees in Guantanamo Bay. So that one, uh, you want to talk about notorious? Um, that's almost a whole different world of, yeah, of Guantanamo Bay,
0: and you're you you're, you're kind of jumping me a little bit here, <laughs> and that's okay because, you know the, the, and to set the stage for for everybody, we're talking about you know two different, really two different sides of the fight, um, and I, what I think is is very interesting, and the reason I use notorious for, um, for the Eddie Gallagher case is because you started out defending. Eddie Gallagher against his platoon whereas the other one that that you referenced you're defending the enemy against America right. that's i mean those are two completely separate worlds and i think it it really you know the court of public opinion in a lot of ways fell on 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 Eddie Gallagher's side um and i've 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 done a lot of you know research on that and I'm not even sure where I would fall on it, to be perfectly honest. Um, but then, the other side that that you that you jump to is you're you're defending the enemy. I mean, was there a was there any kind of difficulty in stepping up and doing that?
1: Well, it, it, probably a better way to look at it is comparing doing Guantanamo to uh, again, I was still on active duty uh, to the Haditha war crimes cases, right? Mm-hmm. Which I was very much involved with. We had actually two sets, the Haditha and Hamdaniya. And on Haditha, that's the one that got all the publicity that was in the news. Right. You know. And was, give
0: everybody about a, a two-minute highlight of what happened at in Haditha.
1: Okay. It, 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 the Marines, um, uh, there were Marines from First Marines that were stationed in Haditha, Iraq, and had been a, traditionally a hotspot. When they arrived there— Things were pretty cool and calm, uh, mm-hmm. which was unusual. Um, Stasser and Frank Wooderich and uh, had to squat out doing an, just a a morning run, some some uh, dropping off some supplies, changing out some personnel, it, kind of an ordinary run. When they're driving back, and an IED goes off and blows up one of the four Humvees in their convoy, um, kills one Marine, wounds another Marine. They immediately, you know pull their vehicles to the side, uh, as they were trained to do. And they're waiting for the follow on attack. Um, so while they were waiting for the follow on attack, they start receiving fire from a house. Um, the quick reaction. So so now an
0: ambush has been established.
1: Absolutely. And this is something we've seen many, many times. And, and and this was the part of a coordinated attack by the enemy on third battalion, first Marines, um, that day. I mean, we've got, we had footage of, all the firefights that, that where they were attacking Marines all over the city that whole day. This was just the chapter one of that. So the quick reaction force comes up to where Wooderch is and the platoon commander tells Wooderch to go clear those houses, clear south. So he takes a group down to the house. He goes through the first house. Uh, they clear that one. They hear some sounds in the room. They back then the way they were trained is they throw a grenade in there, wait for it to go off then step in and fire. And they killed a number of people in that first house. As they were doing that, they see somebody running from the house. Uh, somebody yells out, "We got a runner!" and they pursued him to what's now known as House Two, and this was really the bad one. So they proceed to clear House Two in, in a similar manner, um, and the third house didn't ha- was empty. Um, now, before all that happened, before they started clearing it, there was a white car that was right next to the convoy. So as 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 the IED blew up. There's nobody there. On the, I mean, it was one of those things, it was 7.30 in the morning, but there's nobody out, which is always kind of an ominous sign, right, except this one white car. After the ID came on, uh, blew up and they got out of the car, the occupants, there were five occupants of that car, um, they were they were yelling at them, you know, stay there, raise your hands. I mean, the locals know the deal. Instead, they got up and they took off and they ran. Um, thinking that th- these are the trigger men, uh, and maybe we have an- another Vehicle borne IED sitting right next to them, Uh, Marines fire and they take them out. Staff Sergeant Wooderich and uh, a guy named Sergeant Delacruz take these guys out. That was the first shooting. Then the quick reaction force came up and they started clearing these houses. All all
0: males, correct?
1: All males. Okay. Yeah. All military age males. Yes. So it's an important point. It is an important point um, because, especially when you deal with the perception of the guys when you're Mm -hmm. on the ground. Um, So after they cleared uh, House One and House Two, they set up an overwatch position and across the way they saw some more uh, suspicious activity and they went over and, and kind of uh, investigated and they end up clearing this house four. In house four um, they went in and as they're walking through the house, it was Staff Sergeant Woodrich and one other Marine, they walked through and they heard something and they walked into a back room and there were three Iraqi males, one with an AK-47. So. One of the Marines started firing until he was out, and then Woodward stepped in the room, and he fired, and they killed those three guys.
0: And this is what year?
1: This was 2006.
0: Okay, so the rules of engagement at that point, though, just because, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, just because somebody had an AK-47, it did not make them a threat, whereas that years later did become the uh, the rules of engagement. Is it did.
1: It, they have to be displaying hostile action to hostile okay. intent. That was okay. the, the ROE at the time. So, um, but the first morning you stepped in, uh, viewed that as certainly ho- uh, hostile action, hostile intent. When you're
0: taking fire and you come across somebody, I mean, you don't have to see them firing to know that they could be a threat.
1: Right. And he's holding an AK 47. It wasn't slung over his shoulder. He was holding it, pointing it towards the door. Okay. So, um, so after that was over, they, they came in and, uh, for Haditha, they came in, uh, uh Battalion commander sent the company commander to take a look at what happened. Uh, he went down there and there was n- a number of women and kids that were killed and their view was as a tragic result, but this is how it unfolded. Um, however, some insurgents with a video camera filmed th- the bodies and put out this narrative that an ID went off and the Marines just went on a killing rampage indiscriminately shooting everybody. So that's a story that, that hits the, the media. And, um, it became a huge deal. President Bush even commented on it. Uh, and we had Congressman Murtha, uh, who made a statement that these Marines killed in cold blood, that he had it on the highest, you know, highest authority. He had the information that these Marines killed in cold blood, which was certainly not true, but that spun up what to be the, the, the largest military investigation in history with Haditha with, uh, you know, the media kind of swarming around thinking we've got a new me lie massacre. Um, now the one real problem with that whole case, especially from my, my perspective was house two, one of the rooms that they went and cleared where they threw a grenade in one actually didn't go off. And then somebody stepped in and fired is that room was filled with nothing but women and children. So as you can imagine, the scene in that was horrific. Um, and that, you know, that's something that pe- people don't forget, um, and that's probably a big part of what drove this case to continue forward as well was the scene of of women and kids being killed. Now, exactly who fired in that room? Um, what what were the circumstances? Was kind of the basis a big part of that case?
0: Yeah, because if 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 I see a video of something like that, it is it's horrible. I mean, it's you don't you don't wish that upon people, but that does not automatically implicate and assume that by this time as the marines as the aggressors that they're the ones that did it i mean there's there's i mean how many things do we know in hindsight now of you know the taliban or uh you know uh, just any select any number of bad guys over in that region right of them actually doing the killing then videoing it and sending it back and using the psychops uh, against us so why do you suppose and 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 when you know when we talk about this it makes it easy to see hey Todd this is why I'm everybody's entitled to a good defense because it's not always as cut and dry as everyone wants to believe but why do you suppose our congressmen and our our politicians jump to the conclusion that our guys who are over there putting themselves in harm's way are the ones in the wrong why do they why is that conclusion always drawn quickly
1: and it and it happens in in many of these cases I've done a lot of these um, war crimes cases or just cases uh, that involve deaths overseas and they become political footballs um and so oftentimes it's a very partisan thing in this case with congressman Murtha It was part of his anti-war, we shouldn't be in war in Iraq platform. And and this is like, see, this is why we shouldn't be in war because these kinds of things happen. So, um, you know, in in any kind of politically charged issue, you have some kind of incident that that occurs. People are going to take sides on that Mm -hmm. and their positions. And that's part of what drives this narrative. And interesting, before the Haditha, uh, Haditha had huge effects when it comes to Um, how these cases are treated and perceived, including within the military. So one of the things that happened in Haditha is not only did Staff Sergeant Witterich and the other Marines that were clearing houses get charged, but they charged the leadership within that battalion with kind of like a failing to report cover-up kind of thing, which was actually complete nonsense. But they charged the battalion commander. When you
0: say they charged the leadership, who is they?
1: We're talking about the U.S. Marine Corps.
0: United States Marine Corps charged its own leadership and its own Marines, which and and good on them if 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 they'd done something that they shouldn't have done.
1: So so yeah, because we have this: if, if somebody orders a Marine to go do something bad, the person who who gives the order should also be answering for it as well. Because you know, part of the, part of the criticisms you hear is that well, the guy in the ground is the guy who gets thrown into the bus, and and nobody else. They they're you know, it's it's kind of like. Uh, the old mafia cases, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 lowly guy gets it and, and the Don is, is untouchable. Yeah. So, um, I understand that in this particular case, however, you had the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Chassani sends a company commander down there to, to, to kind of examine, look at it, investigate and see what happened. And, uh, because this thing blew up and became such a political football, they decided to go after Chassani and the company commander. Uh, who was just one outstanding Marine captain, um, the battalion lawyer, and the battalion intel officer? All those people um, were end up char- charged in along the lines of this thing. So um, you had all the Marines that were involved in the shooting, plus all the, the leadership. Now the reason why this is so significant, especially when it comes to charging Lieutenant Colonel Chisani, who, it, as much as I can figure, did absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever. To include, he did report up what happened. Um, he didn't report it like some people think he should have, but he reported what happened. So, but the impact of this, of going after a battalion commander for, for not throwing your people under the bus immediately and, and locking them up and charging them was. The message was sent that if you don't do that, we're going to go after you as well. So this was, this went beyond just holding leadership accountable. This was a threat to all commanders. Now, when we were doing the Haditha cases, um, there were uh, professional military education programs all over the place that were teaching Haditha. And we got word of, uh, we hadn't even done Staff Sergeant Warfare's article. You mean from a tactical level? Tactical, it was being taught at uh, like the uh, Naval War College. These were leadership classes. Naval War College, the Army Command and General Staff College. Um, and I'm thinking, what, what are they teaching them? We don't even know the facts of the yeah, case yet. It's not right? even,
0: it's not even completed.
1: But the message was out there of if your Marines do something and you don't charge them, you are going to be charged yourself. So that message was sent out clearly, right?
0: Well, that's a rough
1: message. It, it is a rough message. And that, that's why I said it was so, I don't even think people realize how instrumental that, that case was. And changing how these cases were all looked at and viewed going forward. And you can picture commanders out there that you get a report of some incident. Even if you think, yeah, I don't think something's there. You got your own, you know, staff judge advocate advising you going, sir, you remember what happened to Haditha. If you don't charge these guys, you may go down too. this,
0: This speaks right to one of the things I want to talk to you about. And that's unlawful command influence because that's become a hot topic and one of our one of our other shows, um, a gentleman by the name of Fred Galvin, whom I believe you uh, you're certainly familiar with his case. If you haven't met him, he dealt with that quite a bit. And so I, I don't want to digress too far because I want to close the loop on what we're talking about here with Aditha. So essentially, the the people that were charged, to include uh, staff sergeant, uh, sergeant, platoon commander. I mean. It, I didn't hear you say the company, or you you did say the company Company commander. commander. So everybody in the chain was essentially charged.
1: Except for the platoon commander, which was interesting.
0: Oh, no, I didn't pick up on that. Okay, The the
1: same platoon commander who ordered Woodridge to go clear the houses is one of the few who did not get charged. Oh, my. Which was an interesting thing because his father was a huge uh, money. He donated large sums of money for like the Marine Corps Museum and that sort of thing. So there so, were some politics. Oh, absolutely! There's politics in every step of that case. Okay. Well,
0: I don't want to. I don't want to mention any names there or ask any because I, you know, I want to be mindful of the absent in that regard. But tell everybody. So let, let's let's get to uh, the conclusion of things and, and anything that may have happened in the courtroom that, that you think is really uh, pertinent to what we're discussing.
1: Well, the Marine Corps spent millions of dollars um, on this. Uh, it lasted, uh, I think, a total of about six years from start to the, the very last finish of a case. Um, only two people actually went to trial. One, one was one of the officers. The lawyer. Minute.
0: I want to make sure I understand this: six years from the time it happened to the time it concluded. Obviously, it wasn't in the courtroom that entire time, but you're you're talking about all of the investigations
1: and. and well, it's in the courtroom for about five of those years, so from the time it was started. So they were charged in uh, December of 2006 and the case concluded into the last case, Woodridge's case concluded in 2012. Um, These can be very complex cases and uh, there's a lot of moving parts that happened here and that that caused some of the delays. Um, But no, it it lasted a long long time. They took the, the battalion lawyer to trial and he was acquitted um, all the other cases were dismissed, with exception of Wooderich's. And when Wooderich finally went to trial, um, the trial was going very badly for the prosecutor, and they offered a deal in the middle of trial where status Wooderich ended up um, pleading guilty to a negligent dereliction of duty. And w- the one thing he had done was when he sent his guys in to clear the houses, uh, he said, you no, know, shoot first, ask questions later. And it was just kind of one of those sayings of be careful, but it's not exactly the right message you want to send your Marines when you're doing it. So he ends up with an effect of misdemeanor conviction, uh, for a ne- which is the most minor offense in all of the UCMJ. Um, you can't even get a discharge for an offense like that. So uh, he ends up uh, pleading guilty to a negligent dereliction of duty for, for making that statement. So for all, all that time and money and manpower that was expelled, the only conviction was Woodridge for a negligent dereliction of duty for, for making that one statement. That's it.
0: But we've still got a nice museum, so.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That was a,
0: that was probably a, an unnecessary shot, but, um, so.
1: And you were talking about comparing that to defending someone in Guantanamo, yes. right? So, um, and those were going on at the same time. I, I, I defended, Oh, is that right? You you had
0: both of those cases going at same, on at the same time, right?
1: We had the Hamdania and Haditha cases going on at Pendleton, and I was representing a, a kid named Omar Cotter um, at the at, at the military commissions in Guantanamo. Okay, I did that from it was like oh five to 07, I was representing him, um, so there was overlap when these all all these cases were going on at the same time. Um, and it kind of struck me. Uh, Guantanamo is like a whole nother world. Um, the legal system is, I, I'm not a big fan. Uh, it, it's, it's a sham. It's gotten better. It's still a sham. But uh, for example, in the Hamdania case, and the Hamdania case was uh, Marines kept, they, had, they caught this, this, the king IED maker in the town of Hamdania, only for the Iraqi legal system a let him go twice. And a sergeant Turk upon himself, squad leader. Who did not want to put up with it anymore, and hatched a plan to take a squad out there, pull the guy out of his house, make it look like he's digging in an IED, and kill him. Obviously, it's something that we can't do. But at the same time, he's being driven by a, a constant threat that keeps getting released. So that that's kind of what Hamdani was about. When and- you say a
0: constant threat that keeps getting released, meaning we kept we kept it uh, um, retaining this guy, uh, arresting him, but then we'd release him back into society
1: that's right for him to kill more Marines with IEDs and is,
0: and why would we do that
1: well we're, we're turning it over to the Iraqi legal system for them to sort out how to how to handle it and it was it was so it wasn't us releasing him it is here's this guy here's the evidence we have against him, and they decide to release him for whatever reason
0: okay so so we've got a a suspected because he was never at that point, We'd never caught him doing any of this, correct?
1: They had pretty good intel on
0: them. Okay, so we had good intel, um, and so we turn him over to the Iraqis. The Iraqis turn him uh, back out to society, probably basically saying, "Well, hey, you know, I don't care what intel you have. There's not enough to convict the guy, or somebody's palms get greased and he gets out." So our guy takes it upon himself to protect himself and his buddies by snatching this guy midnight snatch bring him out uh, or make it look like he's actually in the process of doing bad stuff. So a little Machiavellian uh, end justifying the means.
1: Absolutely. Now okay. the, the plan goes a little bit awry. They actually pulled the wrong guy out of the house. They actually pull his, uh, I think it was his brother-in-law who, who's not a nice guy either. He was a bath party policeman with a weapons cache in his backyard. But, um, and the guy ends up trying to run away and they end up shooting him because he's running away. So that investigation gets spun up and obviously these Marines are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, so we had that and the Haditha going at the same time and we also had, you know, and then I also had uh, defending the guy in Guantanamo. So I remember there was a Lieutenant who was being charged, uh, with the Hamdania case of holding an empty pistol up to a detainee's head to say, tell me where the IED is. Um, And he was charged with assault. So kind of similar to like Alan West, if you're familiar with Alan Mm -hmm. West, that's basically what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, now the weapon was empty, but, but he was using that kind of threat and, and we, the United States charged that Lieutenant with a crime for, uh, aggravated assault. Um, so I remember sitting in the courtroom at Camp Pendleton, watching a hearing on dealing with that very same charge. And then I got on a plane the next day and flew to Guantanamo where that kind of treatment on prisoners was, that, that was part of the game plan. I mean, that plus a whole lot more. And I thought the hypocrisy to me was, was absolutely stunning. Look, if it's an illegal act, then we can't do it in Guantanamo. If it's okay, then we shouldn't be charging the lieutenant with a crime. But both of them can't coexist. So um, I, I just saw this huge hypocrisy between the two. Um, and in, uh, and in Guantanamo, I, I, you know, I walked into that case a little bit naive thinking that it was going to be, you know, kind of like most of the military cases, except, uh, they got all the evidence against them and they got all the assets and, you know, they got all the power and we have nothing. Um, but it, I thought it was gonna be very similar to kind of on the you know, military cases. And it was absolutely not, um, lies, deceits. Uh, uh, it was kind of a horrendous process to be part of.
0: Lies and deceits from those who were trying to justify why they were doing what they were doing. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: I mean the legal process. That and and kind of minimizing the, the the entire legal process. I mean, they would lie to us about evidence, and there's nothing you can do about it when you find out that it's a lie. I um, mean, they're withholding evidence. They they changed evidence. They modified evidence. Um, they threw my client in in solitary one time. Although they he didn't call it solitary and then lied about the reason why they put him there. Um, and when you're trying to defend him and raise issues in court, uh, not to mention all kinds of other threats and other things that happened, uh, including to me. So, uh, yeah, I got, I got accused of accepting illegal gifts from foreign governments at one point. And I'm and like, we, what? and
0: were you still a Marine? I
1: was still, I was a Marine lieutenant colonel with a top secret SCI clearance.
0: And so was it just some random scuttlebutt? Hey, I heard that, you know, or did someone actually, do you know who accused you of doing it? I this?
1: do know who accused me of doing it. Absolutely. They went to my boss to, to make the accusation. Um, and it and was, this was somebody in uniform, it was somebody in uniform wearing stars. So, um, so things like that. I had a gag order placed on me one time. Um, I had an army colonel and I don't know who this guy was at one point after one of the hearings, I, I got back to camp Pendleton and this guy calls me up just yelling at me. He was a, some 06 army, um, threatening to charge me. And I do not even know who this guy was or why he was calling me, but that's, that's kind of what you get when you got into Guantanamo. Um, and I was the most senior military guy defending somebody in, in Guantanamo at the time. So I think a lot of that kind of came my way. Um, now part of it was probably cause what I was saying in court or, or, or saying myself, so not saying I didn't bring it on myself, but, It's an ugly process. I'm not a big fan at all. Well,
0: the the whole thing is ugly. It is Um, ugly. Because I'm listening to what you're saying, and on one hand, you're defending a Marine who is carrying out his duties. Um, Whether or not it went swimmingly well is obviously open to debate, but you've got the Marine Corps and the government, for that matter, coming down from above saying, we know— the right and the wrong here. And here's what should be happening. Here's the conclusion that should be drawn. And then on the other hand, you've got Marines that probably weren't acting within the confines of their required duties, um, maybe using too much of a Machiavellian approach. And you're defending the bad guy who just, there's sounds like there's plenty of of case there to, to say that, he shouldn't have been doing things that he should. I mean, you're, you're arguing both sides of this, but yet the Marine Corps and the government is doing the same thing on both sides saying, well, we know the conclusion that needs to be drawn.
1: Yeah. That's you've summed it up pretty well. Absolutely.
0: I'm not sure I summed it up. Well, I'm not sure what the hell I just said.
1: Well, it, I mean, cause it, that's confusing. We had some, something funny happened to me kind of personally about that time too. So my daughter was, uh, senior in high school and she was, uh, getting ready to go to college and, and had applied, um, for a scholarship through the VFW, right. They offer some scholarships for kids going to college. And she wrote an essay about, um, what I was doing with, with Stas and Woodridge and the Haditha cases and, and some of those things, uh, as you can imagine, that was a pretty receptive group of people mm-hmm. who, um, you know, thought that these, none of these guys, even the Hamdaniya guys, shouldn't be charged. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the, now the former guys that aren't still in uniform and she won some kind of partial scholarship for writing that essay and got to go to a banquet. And I remember going to the banquet with my daughter and I said, uh, now remember when they ask you any kind of questions, you can talk about Hadith, all, everything you know about Hadith all you want, but don't mention to them for one second that, uh, I did anything dealing with Guantanamo. Because it would be, it's amazing. You could have, um, there were all kinds of people saying things in the media all the time. When it came to Haditha, I was some kind of hero for the folks on the right. Yeah. And for for a lot on the liberal side, I'm, I'm part of the problem, right? I'm allowing this, these kind of murders to go forward. You don't have
0: any friends, do you?
1: (laughs) When it came to Guantanamo, it's flopped. It's just, it's, it's completely flipped, right? So, on the more on the liberal side, I'm some kind of hero fighting the United States against injustice in Guantanamo, and the conservatives thinking I'm a traitor. So, fortunately, very few people have ever kind of connected the two. You know, a few reporters did, but um, it, you know, it was this you were in this unusual position, right? So, I, well, I've got people you, you, loving you and say, hating me from all over the place.
0: I was going to say, you just said it's an un, un, unusual uh, position, but I think it's an unwinnable position position um and I, and I think it it speaks to so many things in our society right now that I see as problematic and that is people jumping to a conclusion based on a sound bite people jumping to a decision based on what they hear and what they read rather than I'm not in the courtroom I mean I I have no idea all the things that are said you know like you know we talked about Eddie Gallagher earlier I wasn't there. I've read, I've read, the, you know, the book on it. I've watched the docu series on it. Uh, I've talked to you very briefly on it. I've talked to guys who have served with them, and without actually being there and knowing all of it, how can you draw a conclusion that says one hundred percent this is this is the truth?
1: It's difficult. Uh, I, I mean, you can't. You, you just can't do it, and you shouldn't do it. Um, I, I think we as citizens have a, an obligation to actually learn more than just reading some internet story. Uh, if you're going to profess opi- opinions on things that are so important, you got a duty to actually learn it. I mean, there are documents out there. For example, I, love,
0: I love that. Hold on. I want you to say that again. We have a duty as citizens to learn and educate ourselves to
1: this. For example, we the Supreme Court just came down with a Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. right? And it is an incredibly important legal opinion, not just as to abortion, but to a lot of other issues. Yes. And you can turn on the TV and depending on what channel you're watching, you know, it's the greatest opinion ever. It's the worst opinion ever. And people are protesting. And I would just say that how many of these people, including newscasters have actually read the opinion because it's something that every American should read or the original case or the original case of Roe v. Wade, but everybody should be reading this opinion. Um, you, you want to know, you know, what's good about the opinion. What's what's scary about the opinion, you need to read the the full opinion before you start spouting off on, on what it means or what it doesn't mean because you really have no idea.
0: Well, and and you're you're pointing out the people that um that talk about this on the news. Let, let's not exonerate, you know, our congress folks
1: oh, absolutely. who are
0: commenting on this and haven't read it either.
1: Absolutely.
0: What is the one impressionable lesson that you've walked out of this with? Whether it be about people, about yourself, systems, what is the one lesson that you that you can can derive from this and teach others with?
1: Um, and are you are you talking about really unlawful command influence or no? Or I'm, ta- just, I'm just talking overall? about
0: your your experience. I mean, you've you've learned a lot. From all of this, you've learned about yourself, you've learned about others, you've learned about human nature systems. What is the, I mean, you know, you talked about your daughter, do- let's, let's go this route. You talked about your daughter earlier and she's going off to school. And I know, I know you had a son that went to A&M as well.
1: Two two sons went to 2 sons to A&M.
0: That went to A&M, sorry. What lessons do you try to teach them from your experiences?
1: Okay. Um, well, one of the things that, that, uh, what I've done as an attorney uh, can't be divorced from. I'm I'm also part of an organization called the trial lawyers college and I'm an instructor for them. And what we do is we provide, we teach criminal defense and civil plaintiff lawyers how to be better trial attorneys. And part of that process is you really got to get in touch with your own self. You got to understand what your feelings are, where they're coming from. Um, And I think in order to defend someone, I, we all have to be in touch with ourselves first. What you know, what are our own emotions? Where do they come from? And also our own responsibilities and duties that we have. So uh, I think what I've, what I've come away with this is um, there are so many people that are willing to uh, make such quick judgments that are out there. And, and what I would say to you is before you start giving uh, an opinion on something that you you really don't know a lot about, then get the information first, because I don't care what kind of case it is. Um, I, I get some case at first, and you you hear the narrative, whether it's you know it's one in the news or not, and maybe you read a, an initial you know law enforcement report on something, um, but it's never quite what it seems at at first. You've really got to get in there and, and get to know what the facts are and get to know the people involved. Because if you don't really do that that deep dive into the you know what's going on in that case, then you can't serve your clients very well. You can't tell their story. And all we are as lawyers anyway are storytellers. That's what we're supposed to be. Now we got fancy books and lots of Latin terms and all that kind of all that kind of stuff. But honestly, all we're supposed to be is storytellers. And if we can't tell a client's story, then we don't belong in this job.
0: And it's the client's story, not the story you want to tell.
1: That's right. It's the client story,
0: and and really, I started smirking as you were telling me that because I'm thinking to myself, why do people spend the time and the money and invest the emotion in movies that have all of this suspense, and they go down, they they think they're going down one direction, and then at the end, because now they have all the information, there's a completely different conclusion. Why can't we do that
1: with real life? You know, I I, I think. We're in a day and age of everything has to be faster and faster and it's got to be out there faster than the other guy. This instant information, the level of technology we have, the the internet, and everything's just got to be put out there fast. Um, social, media, um, social media is probably one of the contributing factors to some of these issues, to some of these problems that we have right oh, yes. now. So pushing out false information, uh, or pushing out information that's out of context. But uh, that
0: supports a narrative that I want supported.
1: Absolutely. And, and what, what – what, if you're an American, one of the things that you should be very defensive of is real journalism. Right? We need, we, we need to make our – especially our newspapers continue to exist because they are some of the last bastions of, of real journalism – where they research a story of truth of truth, and they have to get sources. And in, instead of what you see a lot of times in the internet is we heard this thing and we're going to pump it right out. So um, we as citizens, I mean, we're supposed to be making decisions on who we vote for and, and what direction our country is supposed to go. And we're basing it on oftentimes on faulty information, information that's pushed out fast or pushed out with an agenda. And there's very little critical analysis that analysis that goes on, and that is what's killing this country right now. So, um, and, and I think you see it in all walks of life. Not certainly not just in in my my area. I oh, think yeah. we see it in all walks of life. And uh, I I remember going back to when I was a political science major as an undergraduate, um, and things I would do writing, you know, a paper that encompassed an entire semester and you know, your research and the conclusion and uh, running, running it, running it through the computer back then it was, you know, these big giant supercomputers in a room that we can, you know, our phones are more powerful than now. But the whole point was um, you can't just say, uh, it, draw some quick conclusion because some facts are present. And that's what's really lost is that kind of critical analysis. So, um, and, and I do, those are some of the things I try to tell my children now. I got uh, uh, with my daughter. My older son is a Marine. He's an infantry officer. Nice. And he's up on I&I duty right now. Todd, you know, uh, this that's where we met. Yeah. He's on I&I duty up in Hartford, Connecticut. So, um, and he, he's done deployment and to include a deployment to Syria where they were out fighting ISIS out there. Um, and I, I, just, I, I just hope he's in possession of the right information to make the right decisions. And, you know, I'm constantly worried that uh, – Obviously, something might happen to him, but I'm also worried that he might find himself in a situation like a Staff Sergeant Woodridge. Um, some kind of rules of engagement, some kind of killing that becomes unpopular in the press or in some ways becomes a political football. And and, and now i got to worry about defending my own son in that situation. Um, and I don't think that's far-fetched, and I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility no. given the number of cases that I've seen like that. Dear
0: God, let's hope that doesn't have to
1: happen. My youngest son, who just graduated, uh, a very smart kid with a, a bachelor's and a master's in economics at Texas A&M, and he starts uh, law school at Texas here in about two weeks. Um, and I look at him, that's, that's a hope for the future. Someone who can remember what's important, what's worth fighting for, um, not to rush to conclusions. We need, you know, it's, it's our young folks like that that are going to be the backbone of this country going forward. And all we can do is hope that and pray that they are the ones who are going to keep us on the straight and narrow and keep us focused like we should be.
0: Amen. Well, final question. Um, you know that uh, uh, you know about carry the load. I do. Who are you carrying?
1: I am carrying uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Maxwell and the Semper Fi Farm. So uh, Tim Maxwell is, is uh, someone I know from Texas A&M. He went to A&M with me. He was a year younger. Went to the Marine Corps uh, infantry officer and he was wounded in Iraq in 2004. A um, mortar round and uh, he's got damage in the right side of his body. He's got, he had shrapnel in his head. Um, so it's, it's left him with some, some disability, kind of a little tough to walk. Um, they took the shrapnel on his head a few years ago, but uh, got some loss of uh, use of his right arm. But he still operates something called Simplify Farm in Rural Retreat, Virginia. And it's a working farm. You know, they got cows and sheep and chickens, and, uh, but it's also a retreat for wounded warriors. So he brings in wounded warriors, guys with TBI, PTSD, and they come from different services, different areas, and they come spend some time. Uh, again, it's a retreat and it's a camaraderie. Um, and it's something that helps out these folks that, that really could use it. So so Tim and Shannon Maxwell run this farm, and they, they do this for a living. And uh, so you want to talk about our heroes in life. You talk about Tim Maxwell and, and especially Shannon Maxwell for what they have already done in, for this country and what they are doing for our, our, our veterans going forward. So that's who I carry the load for.
0: Thank you. Kobe. I've enjoyed this. I have to, Todd. Uh, I mean, we could have done this for you know for two more hours, but uh, um, man, alive, so much, uh, so much information. Thanks for being
1: here. Hey, my pleasure.